0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Jizz Talking for a Sunday night. We are with Gerard Damiano, and uh, he is, of course, uh, the son of Jerry Damiano, uh, Deep Throat fame, and uh, Devil and Miss Jones fame. So many other uh, good movies, Night Hunger, among others. And, of course, the my favorite line I remember of all time of any movie, it wasn't, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, it was, What's a nice joint like you doing in a girl like this? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I remember seeing that when I was about 15 years old, and that tells you a little bit about what I found in my dad's uh, porno cupboard and uh, watched it on a Betamax, and so we really went old school on that. So, uh, Gerard, welcome to our show. Well, thank you for having me, Patrick. And uh, let's kind of um, talk a little bit before we get into uh, some of the things. What are you doing now with this 51-year-old this, this now movie? You, you are taking it on the road.
1: Yes. Well, in honor of the 50th anniversary of Deep Throat, uh, my sister Christa and I, we have restored the film from a 35-millimeter internegative that was provided uh, by the Eye Museum in Amsterdam. Um, We've restored the film back to the way that it was originally seen in 1972. Now, over the years, um, Deep Throat has gone through some changes. There's DVD versions and so forth, VHS versions, where the music has been changed. um, In one, they brightened it, sharpened it, and removed all the grain. So even though it looks really crisp and clean, it doesn't really look the way it did on the screen back in 1972 when it premiered at the World Theater. Um, so my my sister and I were, you know, um, we're honored to be able to um, to put the film back together and preserve it for future generations. And um, we we have taken the film out on a bit of a world tour. We're still in the midst of that. Uh, the film premiered in New York City on uh, June twelfth of nineteen seventy two. So we're taking a whole year to take it out and show it. And um, as uh, we were That's speaking great. about a little bit before. Um, my sister and I did not rush to, um, to stream the film online and, and sell it on Blu-ray or DVD and so forth. We feel that it's important to present the film theatrically. So we've been um, showing it in theaters uh, in North America, and we've just uh, come back from uh, uh, first leg of our European tour. Uh, we showed the film in, uh, in Berlin, in uh, Milano, Genoa, Rome, Um, We were in Ghent and Amsterdam and um, Antwerp and, and Brussels. Um, We've, um, we've had quite an adventure at it. We're very um, happy to see how well the film is received, but we've been surprised that um, everywhere we've taken it, everybody's heard of the film, but few people, especially younger people have actually seen it. And so um, when we were in Rome recently, we always like to ask the audience how many people have seen the film and one person you know in a full theater <laughs> raised their hand And, and so um, you know I, I, again I had uh, you know mentioned before we we started that um, that one of the most revolutionary things about deep throat is that it really crossed over into the mainstream in that during a time where you know porn was not, um, consumed on a smartphone under the covers as it is today, you would have to actually go to a movie theater. Now, you know, the movie theaters back in 1970s, you know, in New York City, I can speak <laughs> from experience, you know, was uh, was as referred to now as The Deuce. Okay, 42nd Street was kind of a, a, a rough place that, you know, a, a woman might not want to go alone to there, there to see a film. And Deep Throat really succeeded in um, getting couples And women to come out and brave 42nd Street and go to the theater to watch an adult film. So now, 50 years later, we find that it is still as revolutionary as it was back then, because, again, you know, younger people can't imagine, you know, seeing a film, you know, with adult content um, in the midst of, of an audience, where you might run into somebody you know, or there's your, you know, the postman or elementary school teacher or what have you. Um, back in the 70s, there were a lot of um, celebrities that would, you know, Jacqueline Onassis, for example, was famously, you know, caught waiting online at 42nd street to uh, to watch the film along with everybody else. And so we really enjoyed um, showing the film in that way. Um, but also we like to have a talk back after where we invite um, academics, and um, scholars who can um, contextualize the film, again, for younger generations to to really explain what the big deal was. Because when you look at Deep Throat today, and before I say more, let me ask, we've got, um, you know, quite a few people here. Um, How many of you have seen Deep Throat? Has everybody seen it? Okay, almost everybody. All right, I would say (laughs) two-thirds. But you know, okay, by today's standards, it's really pretty tame stuff. And it would make you wonder, you know, if you'd never seen it before, what the big deal was. So we feel it's important to talk a bit about what the times were like back then, what the laws were like, the obscenity laws that were were changing um, when the film was released. Um, Also about, you know, a lot of the other circles that it touched on, not just legally, but the whole Watergate thing. You know, uh, uh, meet people and they think that the film was is named after, you know, the, the Watergate, you know, informant. They don't realize that it, it was the other way around. And so we've invited um, film critics, um, authors uh, such as Kathy, um, porn stars, sex worker rights advocates, and, uh, and so forth um, in order to have a panel discussion after and talk about some of the many issues that Deep Throat brings up. Uh, it's still, after 50 years, controversial, and so, you know, we'd like to have the opportunity to talk about that a little more and talk about some of the issues that it raises.
0: And, and one, one of the things, you know, uh, young people today will never know about walking into a porno theater, and and you, you had several variations going on. You had uh, the raincoat crowd, you might call it. It had a it had a, a certain smell to it. That was a <laughs> combination of <laughs> and other stuff. And uh, I remember one time uh, I used to when I went to college um in uh, Mason City, Iowa, um every Tuesday was new movie release day. They released two new movies and uh so I had my college schedule <clears throat> set up so I had Tuesday off, or else I took a I took morning classes, the the porno theater opened at eleven and so anyway. Right there at 11 o'clock, I was there with my $5 bill, and I was in there to watch the double feature of the day. And then as the, as the decline of the porno theater uh, went, uh, then they brought a stripper in who was worthless as shit. Hmm. And uh, But then they had those in Des Moines. <clears throat> and then um, uh, one time I took my girlfriend, who's now my wife and a buddy, uh, to a uh, uh, porn theater in Des Moines. And so they had a stripper. We watched, I think it was a Peter North movie, because his cock was about (laughs) that long. Um, And uh, so a stripper comes out and takes my wife's shirt off. And I remember sitting there looking at the ceiling, like, oh, my God, oh, my God, she's going to walk out. She's going to walk out. And I heard a collective zip, unzip (laughs) everybody in the movie theater. (laughs) uh, Because I'm a front row kind of guy. And so anyway, we were sitting in the very front row, and there's my buddy looking at my wife going, oh, my God, her tits are out. And uh, I'm just praying that she doesn't get mad and walk out. But anyway, she didn't, and it just made for kind of an awkward lunch afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but she still married you. But she still married me after all that. And,
2: Wait, and- Was she wearing a bra?
0: Uh, that came off, too.
2: Wow, that was no accident then.
0: Wow. yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that stripper got her all. And as a matter of fact, um, she was a, a fan of the uh, Thousand and One Come Shots movie. She said if she wanted to watch a movie that plot, she'd watch Saving Private Ryan. Um, but uh, the first full-length feature movie she ever watched was uh, the Richard Pacheco movie that I always talk about, Up and Coming. And so, anyway, <laughs> she, um, when we first met Richard Pacheco, she says, that's the guy from that movie, right? <laughs> but uh, uh, and, and Gerard, you've been very well received at all these places? There's been no pushback or, or anything like well,
1: that? Well, in most places, I would say in most places, especially in Italy. They love us in Italy. We've done five shows there in five different cities. Um, we've been invited back. Um, we showed the film in, um, in Bologna. Um, as part of Il Cinema Ritrovato Festival, which is like the world festival of uh, re- uh, film restorations. So that was, again, very exciting for, for my sister and I to honor our father in that way because it wasn't um, a porn film festival. This is a film where they show some of the great films of history that have been restored. So, you know, last um, summer they showed Nanook of the North. Which was celebrating its hundredth year anniversary, they showed in the main piazza "Singing in the Rain," and they showed uh, you know Nasferatu with a full orchestra doing a live accompaniment to the film. It was spectacular, and they showed "Deep Throat." Now they didn't show it out in the piazza in front of the church like some of the other films, but still they showed it for a few nights. And you know, again, it was a great honor. We showed the film in Torino as uh, guests of the. National Museum of Cinema, which, again, I think our father would be very proud to know that his um, film is considered um, to be cinema, you know, not just porn movies or whatever. People like to look down on uh, adult film or films with adult content, where my father, during the porno chic era, and uh, Richard, I'm sure you probably remember this idea that Everyone thought that Hollywood films and adult films were going to merge together and the divisions would go away and it wouldn't be regular films or legit films, straight films and porn films or whatever, It would just be films. And sometimes they'd have sex and sometimes they wouldn't or sometimes you'd see it or sometimes you wouldn't. And there would be no division. But of course, that never really quite happened. And then video came along and then the Internet, which really divided um, the genres even further. Um, right. So, you know, we, we were very excited to, to go through Italy. Um, but the one place where we really had some pushback was, surprisingly to me, was in Canada. Now, I'd never been to Canada before. And I always thought, you know, from everything I've learned that Canada was like our, our you know, nicer, you know, more civilized um, cousins to the North that don't have guns you know and uh i was very <laughs> surprised that um you know there was literally a, a picket line in front of the theater um they threatened you know our lives they threatened to burn the theater down um, and it was really it made for a great show i mean i gotta say we you know the show must go on so we did it anyway but you know my my sister and i flew into vancouver this was in uh, vancouver british columbia we flew in and because we got in earlier in the day We um, are, we were staying in an Airbnb, which wasn't quite ready yet. So we literally took a a taxi from the airport right to the theater with our suitcases. And when we got there, we were met with the owner of the theater and the staff and we all sat down and they explained that they'd been getting, um, you know, harassed online and threatening emails and and like that, Um, which, you know, not only surprised us, but it also really changed the tone of our show. But in the end, as I said, it made for really great presentation because we had um, some great people join us. We had a very prestigious um, professor um, from the University of Montreal join us via Skype. We had a couple of um, sex worker rights activists that were there, um, one, of, one of whom was transgendered. So they were able to kind of speak about the climate in Vancouver and, and so forth. Um, so in the, in the end, you know, as I said, it made for a better show because not only was there, you know, a lot of drama and excitement, but, you know, we were on the evening news that very night. And again, the next night when we did the, the show. And so, um, you know, there were, it was basically um, a radical feminist group. um, And as you know, some of you probably already know, there was some controversy about the film um, where eight years after it was, um, you know, released, Uh, Linda Lovelace published a book, her third autobiography at the time, uh, called Ordeal, in which she claimed that, um, you know, she was forced to do Deep Throat and uh, the film Deep Throat with a gun held to her head the entire time. (laughs) No, no, no. Yes. Okay. So anybody in the know knows that that wasn't really true. But the truth is very complicated. And it's a very sensitive subject. And my sister and I both consider ourselves to be feminists. Um, after the what are now considered the anti-porn feminists, kind of recruited Linda after her book came out, they thought, well, this is the perfect spokesperson for us. The, arguably at the time, the most famous female porn star of all time to come out and say that she was forced to do it, that she, you know, that, that she... Um, Turned her back on the whole industry. It made, um, you know, it made for very strong talking points. Um, so much so that she then appeared before Congress during the the Reagan administration because he was waging his war on porn, which is not uncommon, you know. At first, it was Nixon, and to kind of draw attention away from his own um, his own, uh, let's say, you know, criminality he was pointing the finger at porn. Look at, you know, this is what's wrong with our country. And so, you know, by, by the time Ordeal came out, it was Reagan who was, you know, ironically now after Watergate in the midst of uh, Iran Contragate, which to me is obscene. You know, when you know about what really happened, like that's pornography to me, not, you know, consenting adults having sex on, on film, but, but okay, this all happened at a time where the, um, you know, Gloria Steinem, uh, Andrea Dworkin, uh, Catherine McKinnon, you know, took advantage of Linda and later Linda Lovelace herself, you know, Linda Marciano at the time, you know, herself came out and said, the feminists use me worse than the people in porn did, you know, they put me out in front, they made a lot of money, you know, she did all these talk shows and stuff, she never got paid from them, um, and then, you know, if you know the, the, the full story, and you know, I have to throw something else in. If you know the full story, um, towards the end of her life, she returned to porn. Although she wasn't fully nude, she um, did a, a centerfold for Leg Show magazine. And I say on just an aside, um, coincidentally, the photographer who shot that, that did that shoot with Linda um, lives on my street in Queens. And I ran into him today. I hadn't seen him in years. And so I stopped and we talked and, you know, talked about I'd like to interview. I've been um, working on a film about my father. Um, uh, Richard Pacheco knows I was at his house and interviewed him for it. Um, But uh, and uh, Eric Edwards as well, um, you know, has been uh, interviewed for the film. Um, So Warren Tang, who's the photographer, can talk about, you know, her last photo shoots, And kind of where she was coming from at that time when she, at this point, had kind of um, come full circle and was back, you know, had made peace with her past, was back making, you know, I won't say porn, but, yeah, she was doing, you know, sexy centerfolds in a men's magazine. And so, you know, she was now okay with it. Um, But, you know, a lot of young people, they don't know the whole story. It's a complicated story. She was definitely abused. But she was abused by her own husband in a case of domestic violence, and you know if you really know more about her, you know she suffered worse things before she made deep throat, and it was actually you know being in porn that helped her get out of the abusive relationship, get away from her husband, and um, you know reinvent herself um, and you know, un- unfortunately, you know, and this is my my opinion, I don't know for a fact, but I think, you know, at a certain point in her life, um, she couldn't escape being Linda Lovelace. You know, I think after three or four years of kind of riding the wave of being this celebrity, and then, you know, she tried, she made some other films, and she tried her hand at Hollywood, and she tried her own um, uh, to do like a one-woman show, Um, But it all failed. And so in the end, she just wanted to settle down. She got married. She had a kid and another one on the way. And I think she was tired of being Linda Lovelace, but she couldn't escape it. I mean, I imagine that she couldn't go to the grocery store or fill up her her car with gasoline without somebody recognizing her and saying. And so she might have really felt in a position where the only way that she could separate herself from her past was to say, I had a gun held to my head. I had no you know no part, no agency. you know it was all against my will, and just disavow the whole thing. Now, you know, that is my own opinion, um, but it would say a lot. and happen at a time where, again, she had a book, her third of four books that she she wrote about herself, uh, or you know, autobiographies that were all actually written by men. And you know, this one was, you know more sensational. And I think her bestseller, because that's the story that people want to hear. They don't want to hear that a bunch of consenting adults got together and had a great time and everybody came and came and went and had a great night. That's not doesn't make for exciting story. Okay. Except, except, you know, Richard, for your book, of course, which has a lot of that that in it, where it wasn't all, you know, horror and, you know, um, uh, you know, force of forced entry okay that there is you know consent so you know again her story is a bit complicated but we're not you know we can't show the film without at least acknowledging that because 50 years ago Deep Throat was controversial but it was controversial for obscenity the obscenity laws that were antiquated and Deep Throat became a flashpoint and that you know it really brought it all to the surface and that was where the court cases and, uh, you know, the newspaper headlines and all that were about. Now, 50 years later, it's not about obscenity anymore. I think the the big issue of the day um, next to school shootings, my God, who would have thought like gunning down innocent children would be, you know, what's plaguing America today? You know, that aside, you know, the the Me Too movement and violence against women and, uh, you know, the waking up to the patriarchy you know is the issue of the day and so if deep throat helps to spark a conversation about that that's that's a great thing that's important but you know there's a lot of younger people who just know uh, a meme they saw on the internet and they think oh this is a, a film isn't that the film where the woman got raped at gunpoint no <laughs> it's not as simple as that but that's what some people believe so um you know Vancouver was a very exciting but very emotional and emotionally draining show and uh we showed the film in in belgium uh, in ghent and in ghent it was a similar thing there weren't 40 people with signs out front but there was a small group of mostly women um that were like a me too rape support group that you know basically they had that the line of there was a gun held to my head the entire time and so They were all rape victims themselves. And so they felt that they had to stand up against this because, you know, I could understand where they're coming from. I had a conversation with them, you know, before the show went on. Um, It's a very sensitive subject. But again, they didn't have the whole story. They felt that, you know, nobody's believing, you know, the victims are not being believed and nobody believed Linda and they're standing out with signs that say, we believe Linda. And I had to say, you know, look, I'm not saying that she wasn't abused and and beat up and, you know, abused sexually by her husband. From everything I've heard, you know, I could only imagine that that's true. But if you have ever, if you could understand what it's like being on a film set, okay, she was never alone. There was always you know a group of people around which included my father and my mother were there my sister and i we weren't there for the sex scenes but we were there in miami during the filming of deep throat and not a single person came forward to say they saw a gun that that they saw she was coerced and so forth not one now there is a story where she was beaten up by her husband not on the set but behind closed and locked doors And this is something I remember as a kid because it was traumatic. You know, now I didn't really understand what was going on, but later my father explained to me and it it made more sense knowing the context. And what really happened on the set of Deep Throats was that Linda, she was nervous um, not about the sex because that's what she brought to the project. I mean, the film was written for her. It's not like you found somebody and forced her to, how could you force somebody to do, do this, you know, miraculous thing that, that, you know, people just marveled at? She wasn't forced to do, you know, the Deep Throat scene. But what happened was she was nervous because she had no acting experience. And she had made some loops before. And these loops are infamous and far more heinous than anything you'll see in Deep Throat. If you're familiar, I won't even name them. Okay, but if you know the names, and Eric, maybe you can speak on this because Bye, you were there. Okay. We,
3: Linda was my first. Linda was my first loop that I ever did. And uh, we became friends after that, too. So, uh, no, there was no gun held to her head. We, I've had conversations with her and everything like that. Uh, not to change the subject, but I would like to ask you a couple of things, um, if it's okay well, um
1: it's okay to ask I don't have to answer but you, you don't have ask. to answer no no <laughs> yeah.
3: You did Night Hunger the movie I believe
1: um, Well I mean I I haven't fully restored that film We're Oh yes
3: but, but you made it and I want to give you a compliment mm. Uh first of all it was pro- it was shot in Queens I think at that uh, yeah. studio well, let and, me be clear.
1: Uh, my father made the film. I mean, I didn't personally. Oh, I'm
3: sorry. I've got this down as uh, that he did Memories Within Miss and I at you for Night Hunger. I'm wrong. Yeah. No, but anyway. It, it was uh, my father all you, the way.
1: I mean, you know, I was old enough, you know, at for Night Hunger, but I was, you know, working together with my father as a PA or as a director's assistant. That's
3: that's where I remember. Was, Didn't
1: you come to my apartment or my house one time? I, I absolutely <laughs> did. And not only, you know, and you were kind enough uh, to not only put Larry Ravine and I up for a few days while we were there enjoying, you know, lovely time up in the mountains. Um, Thank you. But uh, but we did not only interview a few times, but um I was privileged enough to sit with you and watch all of the scenes that you ever shot with my father and record your commentary. So not only of Oh, that's right. That's right. Within this Aggie we watched together, which is a really powerful film. Um, And Night Hunger, which, you know, again, I think, you know, I know I said this then, but if you don't remember, um, was really a great, you know, acting feat for you because you were, you know, as I've known you and seen you and worked together with you on different films, um, you always play the nice guy. Okay. You're always the, you know, the, the, not the heavy. Okay. So in night hunger, you got to really, you know, dig in and play the bad guy. And that was, you know, great to see you, you know, so out of character.
3: I I didn't have to say too much either.
1: I didn't (laughs) have too many lines
3: to remember it was all emotion stuff. Uh, But, uh,
1: is there a link to that interview that you did with me? And if um, you could, well, well, I can I can share some of that footage with you. I mean, I'm I'm in the midst of the of editing, doing the post um, on okay. the film. And uh, Richard, you're probably wondering, whatever happened? You know, that was years ago. You know, what happened to the film? Well, no, son... I
3: meant the, the interview with the interview that you did with yeah. me. Uh, well, I yeah.
1: interviewed with you, and I interviewed um, him as well. Um, yeah. My sister and I, we wanted this film to have a happy ending. And when yeah. I say the film, the film about my father's life and career, you know, Deep Throat was just one chapter in his life. Yeah. And uh, the story that we wanted to tell was that, that at the, after, after he passed away, that we were able to recover and restore all his best films and re-release them to a new audience like that. And so that's what we've been actually had to put the film project on hold to make that happen in real life so that then we could finish the film about it and and show. So, you know, we filmed our presentation of of, uh, Deep Throat in uh, Bologna at Il Cinema Ritrovato and in Rome at this great uh, cinema Troisi and um, other places as well, because you know, we feel that that how the world looks at Deep Throat today, after 50 years, after the Me Too movement, after all the changes that had happened is an important ending to the film. So Mm -hmm. um, once we wrap up the tour, then I will, you know, actually finish, finish the film itself. But Mm -hmm. in the meantime, I can share some of the um, some of the interviews that you were kind enough to, uh, to grant me and also, you know, some of the commentary, because, you know, I kept, Saying to Larry during our whole adventure, you know, Larry Ravine, for those who don't know, is, uh, you know, considered one of the finest cinematographers of the golden age of porn. Yes. Um, he and I went on the road together um, when, you know, I realized I had been working together with my father to write his um, his biography and, um, you know, was able to get a book deal. And then he died and the publishing company pulled out because they said, well, this you know, our deal was for an autobiography, not just a biography. Um, So at that point, I realized that, you know, for someone like my father, who was so passionate about film, and whose life became all about film, the only way to really honor him is with a film itself. So that's when I decided to, um, to make the documentary about him, which I'm sorry I didn't come to that conclusion earlier while he was still alive, because it would be a very different film if I was able to ask all the questions that I asked of you, Eric, and of you, Howie, to my father himself. Um, But um, unfortunately that wasn't the case. So when it came time to, um, to do the film, I just thought I'd better get out to California and track down these people while I still can and really get their stories because there's so much misinformation out there. That I thought it was important to really speak with the people who were there and talk about, you know, first person, their own experiences, what it was like working with my father, what it was like on the set, and so forth. So I reached out to Larry, because he and I had worked together on a number of films, um, including 12 years, Throat 12 Years After, which, Eric, I hope you'll remember, because that's when we met. Oh, yeah. I was a production assistant on on that film. Eric was one of the stars. And again, playing, you know, the, the nice guy, he was the, uh, the meter reader who, uh, who, um, after, you know, years of, I don't want to say it's the deep throat story itself, but the film throat 12 years after was kind of looking back 12 years after deep throat. So this is 1984, um, looking back at how society had changed since deep throat and the films that came in, um, along with it. And, So, you know, it talks about two couples, one of which is really repressed and the others are swingers. And, you know, at the end of the film, they come together and watch Deep Throat. And that's kind of the punchline of the film. But Gerard, yes, that that movie is fantastic
3: that you I had the most lines in that movie that I've had (laughs) in a long time. And it was a very tender, tender scene, I think. And the girl that you got uh, turned out to be a pretty good actress, too. So congratulations on on that, and to your father.
2: Let's let's, uh,
0: take a few questions here, because we have a few. First of all, I want to introduce Claire. Claire has a podcast called, you like that? Anyway, she features Golden Age stars, and go ahead, Claire, your question.
4: Uh, Yeah, first of all, I just want to say I think it's great that you are going around and providing cultural context around the movie, Mm -hmm. because I think that's a lot of what is lacking in some discussions around porn, particularly as it relates to feminism and consent and all those conversations. Um, to that end, I was curious, what was like the median age you would say of the people protesting the movie?
1: Um, well, that's a good question. Now in Vancouver, it was um, a pretty big group that came out. Um, but what we learned was that um, the protest was organized by you know, a radical feminist group in Vancouver that had also reached out and connected with other you know, groups that, that, um, that have the same you know, ideology. Many of the people were from actually from Australia who were harassing the theater with emails and so forth and posting on social media. So in that case, you know, a lot of people hide behind the an- anonymity of the internet, so it's hard to know you know, how old those people were. But, you know, in um, in Vancouver, it was a varied, you know, group. But I would say, you know, from 20 to 45-ish, maybe a few older people, but, you know, kind of, a, you know, a, a mix of people. Now, in um, in Ghent, however, it was a group of mostly young women, you know, all of which were in their early 20s, and all knew each other, and all, you know, I really got the sense that they were, you know, part of a support group, you know, which I would support, you know, that's why, you know, it kind of put us in a in a difficult situation, because my sister and I weren't there to say, you know, Linda Lovelace was lying, and, you know, no, because it's, it's again, a little more complicated than that, and, you know, we are um very sensitive and also compassionate to the, you know, the the plight of women, not just today, but this is, the Me Too movement is is overdue by centuries. So you know, we're, just, we're just trying to, to catch up to that. So, you know, we, we definitely get that. But we, we want to have the conversation because, you know, as we've been experiencing, not just us in this film, but, you know, after the, you know, in 2015, when, you know, the Harvey Weinstein thing broke and, you know, Me Too became the big hashtag, there was a lot of like kind of a knee jerk reaction to that which we're still recovering from in that, you know, suddenly people are more afraid than ever to talk about sex or anything sexual that in, in, you know, for fear that it would be misconstrued, you know, taken out of context and so forth. And so it's made, you know, even like raising money for my documentary difficult because people don't want to necessarily associate with anything with sex in it for fear that it might you know, reflect badly on them. And that's unfortunate because, you know, I think really mm-hmm. at the core of a lot of these issues is a lack of communication. And so then when people are afraid to talk about sex, then things really start to break down. Um, and so so there's, there's that. Um, but it's part of what has driven my sister and I forward to do this is to just get out there, especially after COVID, where, you know, people are just kind of reconnecting you know, where people have been relating to each other the way we are right now, just through a screen and, you know, and or through social media, which is a very kind of distorted view of someone because people, you know, they put what they want you to, you know, they can put a, a fake profile, a fake name, you don't even know who you're dealing with. Or, you know, they often just put the my life is better than your life pictures on Facebook or whatever, and not what they're really dealing with or really going through. And it's, no substitute for, you know, real one on one, you know, live in person connection. So, you know, for us to show the film to a live audience and then hear what people have to say afterwards, good, bad, ugly and different is enlightening for everyone in the room, because, you know, again, it, people, um especially in America, have had trouble talking about you know, um, adult themes and subjects. And then after me too, then it's really hard for people to talk about stuff. So that's been, you know I think, a, a very healthy thing for us to show the film in this way. And if people have an issue with it or questions about it, they you know can ask why or talk about it and, and so forth. But we found that with these few exceptions in, in Italy, Nobody wanted to know about, you know, Linda Lovelace's bruises or whatever. I mean, you know, that's part of her personal life, which you have to be able to separate out from a a portrayal in a film that she did, you know, like um, it came out that. Judy Garland was abused by the studio system, you know, and fed amphetamines and all kinds of stuff. So, should we cancel Wizard of Oz? You know, can we not watch that film because of what she went through in the process of making it? You know, this is a tricky subject, and I think it's the same kind of thing that you have to sometimes be able to uh, separate the artist from the art or the art from the 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 process. It's important to acknowledge and know what she went through, Um, but at the same time. You know, I don't think um, Judy Garland did the Wizard of Oz against her will, but I think she did a lot of things that looking back, she wished she hadn't done, you know, she became addicted to, to um, pharmaceutical drugs after that, and she was in her teens. So, you know, it's tricky, but we, again, we enjoy having this conversation because it brings up a lot of issues and a lot of people have strong feelings about about the film, and Again, I'll, I'll ask, I know I've been talking a lot. I'm curious to hear what you all have to say.
0: Yeah, we, we have, uh, we have Sean's got his hand up. So, Sean, go ahead. We'll we'll roll okay. off about
1: Well, oh, wait, before you go, Sean, I just wanted to end by saying we've found that the people that have the strongest feelings about the film are those that know the least about it, and many of which have never even seen it. Like all of the people in Vancouver, not one of them had actually seen the film. And I went out and, you know, engaged with them and asked them, and no, we would never, we would never support the f- uh, filming of a rape and like that. But I'm like, yeah, but no. Ironically, the message behind Deep Throat is very sex positive. You know, e- even if in the film, fictitiously, a woman was abused or raped or, you know, it showed a scene where a woman was mistreated or, you know, would, was you know, violated against her will, we wouldn't get behind the film. We couldn't show it. Because that's not the positive message that we want to share. But the truth is, Deep Throat is very empowering to women as a film. You know, the film itself, the character that Linda portrays, you know, in the film, in the end, she's empowered. She, you know, she untangles her tingle, let's say, and then spends the rest of the movie healing others. Okay. It's a very positive message. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. So I'm sorry, uh, Sean, uh, just wanted to, to get that out.
5: I could listen to you all year, man. <laughs> yeah. So much. Yeah. So, first of all, before anything, you sound like your dad. <laughs> that's, that's freaky. Um, it's, you know, as you were talking toward the end of it, uh, Gerard, it reminded me of, uh, I recall, Jimi Hendrix on Dick Cavett. One line he said, uh, you got to wake up the sleeping people. And at the same time, I'm thinking of Oprah Winfrey, who said once, how do you do all this for the kids? I think they were talking about uh, schools in Africa, she's helping out when there's so much trouble in the world. And so how do you do it without getting overwhelmed? And she goes, you fight the fights you can win. So God bless you. <laughs> or uh, because it's sad. It seems like we're regressing. The thing you said about Canada, I mean... It, and I'm from Queens. I used oh, to get oh, I mean on, Queens. <laughs> on a van lick. I actually auditioned for your dad my first year in it. I was so overwhelmed. Yeah. I walked into an apartment. He was with Annie Sprinkle. Okay. And I don't remember if it was Annie's apartment or your dad's or an office. And uh, I think it was for the Satisfiers of Alpha Blue.
1: Okay. And I actually worked on that film.
5: You worked on that film?
1: Yeah. Now so, I mean I would they, say they, I was they, yes, I was underage. I just painted sets and I made the props for it, but I was not, you know, privy to the Yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: Well, they I didn't get the part. I think Arbola got it, but but um <laughs> <laughs> he was a I think your dad was so nice. And in a few weeks later I got help maybe through your dad with Chuck Vincent. I started to work for about I did four years in nine films. Larry Ravine shot a lot of the stuff I did, Luscious and Puerto Rico, so we and I and I take the F train to Van Wyck, and I remember the diners and all that. So I'm with you, man. Uh, Queens Plaza, uh, but and, and and the smell of the city and Bernard's and for and, and Midtown, all that is with my heart. But what you do, I'm listening to you, and it's uh, and I'm not puffing you up. That's in New York. I'm not puffing you up. You you're fighting the fight. And you're, you're awakening, there's more as in your conversation, and I know I've got a lot of it in me to wake people up and to let them communicate, uh, agree or disagree. And my sadness is I'm older, is that this country is not the same. I'm sad about here about that Canada. It is, and I'm in the Midwest now, it is so, it was different when you were on 42nd Street, when you were in the deuce. In 1977, 78, 81, 82, I worked from 81 to 84. And you're on you were alive, you were awake, but the country was too. Vietnam, next thing you referenced all these things. Just a little after don't trust anyone over 30. I know I'm rambling, but now <laughs> it's it's like ugly. Everybody just shuts down. It's like they want us to be just on a TikTok or whatever. It's it's like. It's bigger than all that. And so it's great to see somebody like you uh, process it on the level it deserves. Boogie night should, it should have been mainstream Hollywood with the adult film. It should have been. And I would have been a star if it were, <laughs> but they fucked us up. Yeah. But thank God for your dad. Thank God for you. And I really did not want to miss this interview. So I'm going to, I'm going to shut up, but yeah, uh, I regret I didn't get a chance to work for, for him, but I did get interviewed. and It was really neat to meet him in person. That was cool.
1: Well, well, thank you very much for sharing that and, you know, for, for your compliments. And I will say that, you know, my father and I were very close. And so I've always felt, you know, even early on um, in, the, in the 1990s, I was encouraging him to write a book. Because at that point, so much had been said about some of his work, some of his film, but he really wasn't able to, you know, at that point, put it into context himself and tell his own version of the story. So, you know, that's why I encouraged him. And then eventually we did, you know, start writing a book together. And I did get the book deal that I I mentioned before. Um, But, you know, that book never came out, you know, we were not able to finish it. So, you know, I feel that I'm in a a unique position because I knew what my father felt about a lot of these issues, that some of which really troubled him right to the end of his life. I mean, we lived together, um, you know, up until when he died in 2008. And so, you know, I wanted to tell his story. And I wanted to restore, you know, some of the films, which, you know, are, are historic, if nothing else, you know, um, people still enjoy them today, what they're able to see, um, but they still have a, a relevance. But what neither my sister or I nor our father might have imagined getting, you know, starting in this process and getting into this was that in 2023, that yes, we have regre- regressed in many ways, that they are burning books, is that people are not communicating. People are, are fighting. They're divided. Um, we thought that the internet was going to connect us all and bring us all together. But what we've is that people live in their own little echo chambers and they don't just get out and mix with a, a broader audience and get different viewpoints they're kind of put into um little subgroups that um are you know artificially created by algorithms and so so forth that are are out of our control and it's it's really served to divide us more than unite us and I think that's unfortunate and you know, I didn't believe that showing a movie like this and talking about it afterward would be as revolutionary as it is. But we found that actually going out and meeting people is so refreshing, because you know, COVID really kind of put an exclamation point on how separated we've become.
0: Okay, all right. Let's uh, let's go to James. James, go ahead.
2: All right, uh, Mr. Dambiano, it's wonderful to meet you. Um, I just recently uh, wrapped up a um, probably an, 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 an eight-year career as an adult film reviewer. And uh, your father is one of the reasons why I became that, because I consider wow. him one of the great auteurs of the 1970s, uh, yeah. of that. And he was just amazing. Well, um, huge, huge admirer of his. Um, I just wanted to know, uh, what are some of the responses that you got from the younger people that you showed the film to wow. on this uh I mean, what, what's,
1: I could just, I could just imagine what they thought of it. Well, again, we were very, we were very happy and we know that our father would be proud to know that a lot of his jokes still get a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Deep Road is a comedy, you know, for the yeah. few of you who haven't seen it, it it really is. And um, again, there are younger generations that they heard the controversy. They saw a couple of clips, the Phil Donahue show, maybe the congressional hearing, a couple of things. And They had this conception that, you know, Deep Throat is like a snuff film, you know, or something like that, where this, you know, horrendous, a documentary of some, you know, horrendous abuse that this woman suffered that was captured on film. But, you know, of course, the film is nothing like that. And so, you know, people are very surprised, first, at how funny it is, how light it is, um, how, you know, that it's got, you know, some heart to it yeah, it's still low budget, very 70s. People react to the style now that was not conscious at the time. It was just, that's the way people were. Bushes were hairy, mustaches were bushy, <laughs> you know, collars were wide. It wasn't, you know, art director, you know, that's just the, the way people were. And also people react to um, how refreshing the um, the authenticity of the people were because yeah. this was at a time before porn stars that's what i was wanting to know that's what i was wanting to know because you get a, a mix of people you know and i'm talking more about the men because there's just a couple of women three women in the in the film but the men come in all shapes and sizes and you know some of them are pretty buff and some of them are not and and you know they're they're real people and people react to that because now 50 years later, there's an entire industry that's sprouted up and you have professional porn stars and people that go to the gym every day to, you know, to work up their physique, to go to work and be a porn star or get, you know, silicone injections or, or you know, surgery or whatever to enhance their career as porn stars. And it's created like a stereotype of a, a look, you know, this kind of fake, you know, tit job, bleach right. hair, you know, lip implants or whatever, this kind of phoniness which deep throat is lacking because that didn't you know it didn't occur to anybody it's just they were like, real people they yeah were, we yeah they were real thing.
2: people
0: yeah all right thanks okay. a lot james i remember in, in 1990 <clears throat> i was working at a radio station uh country station and kenny and dolly came out with a song called love is strange and i had to say uh from the movie deep throats kenny rogers and <laughs> dolly Parton, and love is strange and of course, the boss didn't really care for that at all. But anyway, that's where uh, the song Love is Strange uh, was in, was in part of the soundtrack of Deep Throat. Yeah,
1: well, well, very much so. I'm sorry, I had to just go off picture for a second. Um, very much so is that people also respond to the movie, uh, the music in the movie. And we spend a lot of time talking about that because there's some. Really clear choices, there's some original music that um, my father was involved in writing the lyrics to the Deep Throat theme and humming songs that were later produced, and also recording um, new versions of old songs such as Love is Strange, which was, you know, a radio hit and was, um, you know, performed by a lot of different people, but they did an eight minute version that goes over an entire sex scene. And, right. um, and there's a lot of original music that was created for the movie that people really respond to.
0: Right. Uh, Kathy Brown's with us. Kathy, how are you doing tonight?
4: I'm doing well. I was uh, very pleased to be there at the Roxy when there was the, the uh, Deep Throat premiere, Deep Throat at 50. And I moderated uh, the talk back And that was really fun to have people like Veronica Vera there who uh, slept with Harry Reams and offered some insight about how cool he was. Uh, And it was really nice to be involved. And uh, as Gerard said, the audience was so diverse. There were so many young people who were maybe in their 20s who uh, I didn't think were old enough to know what the movie Deep Throat was. So it was really cool to be part of that. And I'd like to ask Gerard about the documentary that he's working on because I remember hearing about it. And I know you interviewed people like Annette Hines, and I believe you interviewed Jerry Butler. Um, He's been gone probably about four years, and you were able to interview him probably one of his last interviews. So what was that like?
1: Well, actually, um, Kathy, I'm sorry to say I never did interview Jerry Butler. I spoke to him a few times on the phone, um, and, you know, and – I don't I don't know. I don't want to say anything negative about him because I really like the guy. I met him on the on the um throat twelve years after shoot where Mm -hmm. I met Eric as well. He was part of that production. Um but you know, he was a strange guy and talked to him on the phone and you know, he it was hard to track him down or get him to call back and you know he would sometimes answer the phone in a fake voice and like that. And I was just wanted to to get with him and talk to him about, you know, working with my father and his own experiences. And right. you know, unfortunately, we were never able to get together before he he passed away, you know, which was a surprise to everyone. You know, was so mm-hmm. sorry when that happened. So, you know That, that um,
4: sounds like him. He could be very elusive. He really could be. But, yeah, I'm sorry you didn't get, but you got to talk to people like Annette Hines, I believe. Yes, did you, did you oh, I just cool. love
1: her. Now, you know, I had to confess that I had a crush on her because she, too, was on the throat 12 years after um, shoot. And so this was 1984. And so I was probably 19 when I met her. And she was so beautiful and just, I thought she was so hot back then that I had to, to share that with her now, ah. you know, later. And um, yes, we actually, Larry and I got out on the road and um, we were able to, to meet up with and interview quite a few people, you know, some of which who are, are no longer with us, like Bill Margold, for example, you know, we, we spoke to and um, he had quite a lot of stories about my father and, you know, really credited him with uh with bringing bill into the uh, adult industry because he um he actually was um was in LA in 1976 when my father um brought his what he felt was his finest film the story of joanna to the west coast and so uh bill had kind of taken him um on the tour to introduce him to the people and so forth and then wrote a big article about it and then you know a few years later actually you know starred in some of my father's films um so he felt that there was a direct connection from his experience first you know meeting my father as you know more of an outsider to you know then like really priding himself on being the you know the papa bear insider
3: well enough
0: we need to uh shift things over to mark murray mark has been doing his own video uh Rejuvenation if you might call that Mark, go ahead, tell us about what you've been up to and and uh, go ahead
6: I'm not really here to talk about me. I wanted to talk to Gerard yeah. Good to yeah. see you again Gerard uh, 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 was a pleasure Mark i just uh just have a comment and then a couple little bits of trivia that I could share um I just really appreciate what you're doing um, you know as a fan and a historian for the, mm-hmm. the um yeah. you know to to provide some credibility for these films you know they they are in in need of support in terms of the the fear of them being forgotten so you know i really appreciate the fact that you're you're taking your time and you're doing things correctly You're, you're not just restoring something so you can rush it out on you know physical media throw it on streaming you know you're you know, I, I really know what lengths that you've gone to over the last year to get deep throat out there. You know, even at a financial loss to yourself.
1: Yeah, you know? well, that's you know that's very true. And thank you for bringing that up. That you know, we were accused in in Vancouver of being rape profiteers. Okay, <laughs> I was to say you know, like hashtag rape profiteer. And I have to say, you know, and I told the audience, you know, it was actually you know the audience was really great because. To have to cross a picket line to see a movie, you know now you're in there now you're really ready to see something, and they were all charged up and ready to talk afterwards and so you know first, I had to say what a great reception. the people were literally lining the streets for us when we got here, which was true. I mean, of course, I mentioned they all had signs and you know were screaming for literally they were gonna cut our heads off and burn down the theater. somebody had had email the theater, at which point they had to call the Canadian version of the FBI, because, you know, if there's like a legitimate death threat, they have to, to bring other people in. But I had to, you know, say to the audience, if you, if you knew how much money we've actually lost doing this, my sister and I, because yeah, had we just sold it, you know, streaming or whatever, we get a nickel every time it plays, we would have made a few bucks. But for us to come to Vancouver, even though it was a big theater and there was a lot of people there and whatever, but, you know, we split the, the ticket price at the door with the theater and like that. It didn't even pay for our Airbnb, you know, to be there, let alone the, the flight or whatever. You know, we sold a couple of T-shirts to help defray the cost. But, you know, it cost us money to do it like that. But, you know, again, we felt we wanted to be there and represent and hear what people had to say and answer their questions if we could um So you know we're hoping that yeah maybe down the line we'll you know we're we're not trying to keep this to ourselves or keep it to just people that can cross the picket line or come to Ghent or whatever to see the movie. We want to make it available to a broader audience. There are versions out there and bootlegs and VHS version and the old DVD version, but you know we feel that ours is the definitive version and what we call the director's cut because again it was the way our father intended it. It it had the music the way it was. There was um. You know a, a crawl. If you know those that are familiar and have seen it on, you know later, um, a 1974 version was made um, where they added this, you know, text at the beginning with quote from Sigmund Freud, which was you know kind of a lame attempt of uh, giving the film um socially redeeming value. <laughs> uh, and and uh, you know uh, Richard is laughing because these are the terms that are used in court. Okay, that. Um, you know, a lot perian of people, interest. Yeah, a lot of people interest. Yes. And socially redeeming value, because just to break it down and what I've been saying to, you know, kids and by kids, I mean, 18 years o- and older. But the younger people that watch the film is that we have a First Amendment right for freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, etc. But that does not cover obscenity. So when my father ended up in court so many different times, really the trial was about what is obscene and who gets to decide what is obscene. Because if the film is deemed to be obscene, then it's not covered by your First Amendment rights and it can be shut down and prosecuted and so forth. And so the, the measure is if the film a- appeals to prurian interests, thank you, Mark, you know, is no, or on the other end, if it has socially redeeming value. So there was a bunch of films, the White Coater films that um, Deep Throat, in a sense, is kind of a tongue in cheek parody of the White Coater film. And by White Coater, these are the movies that it starts with uh, a man in a white coat, you know, presumably a doctor saying, you know, sexual deviation, blah, 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 cut to the sex. And so therefore, yes. healthy marriage is based on blah, 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 cut to the sex so that it gives a framework of socially redeeming value. So the version of Deep Throat that most people are familiar with starts with this, you know, Sigmund Freud quotation and like that, where it's a just a really weak attempt to give the film socially deeming value, this context of, you know, understanding the sexual norms and, you know, whatever. Nobody reads that going up. But again, this is not something that my father had included in the film, wrote into the script. It was, you know, we're getting busted. Maybe if we put this, you know, 40 second thing in the beginning of the movie, then we can claim in court that this is why it's not appealing to prurient interest, but is socially redeeming in nature and educational and therefore, you know, healing.
6: So I, it's, it's really interesting just how uh, rabid the public was to see this movie, and, you know, and, and of course, you know, we've talked about it. $400 million, $600 million, who knows what the actual like, box office take was. But back then when it came out, you know, movies were playing in the theater like a buck, a buck 50. Theaters were charging like $5 to see Deep Throat. And one thing too is that because the movie is, it's just slightly over an hour long, is there were a lot of theaters that would actually cut parts of the movie out, of course, leaving the sex in, to make it just under an hour so that they could continuously show it every hour on the hour,
2: It's our people. Mm
6: -hmm. I I wouldn't be surprised if Deep Throat has been on a projector more than any other film in the world. Um, And truly, I I believe that. Um, You you have to think like, you know, people were getting prosecuted for this. The the local police would come in, they take the print. They had another one show up the next day and they would keep showing the movie. That's how popular it was. That's how much money it was making. You also like. I look at the the Pussycat Theater that that was called Studs, uh, you know, up till recently on uh, what is it Santa Monica in Hollywood, uh, mm-hmm. the film played, and yeah. it played consistently for almost a decade. There were millions and millions of people that saw Deep Throat at one theater in Southern California. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really incredible to me just to think how you know how many people saw it and just how 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 much it was going on for for so long, and here we are again, 51 years, and we're still talking about it. And you know, thank you also again, Gerard, for for bringing this back into the public lexicon and the dialogue, and the and the fact that you were willing to show up at these screenings. You know, you weren't there being defensive. You were there openly and willingly uh, uh, accepting the the discussion. You know, thriving the conversation. And that's a rare thing, uh, you know, for an adult film and people going to see an adult film, uh, whatever experience. So I appreciate what you're doing.
1: Well, well, thank you, Mark, for saying that, you know, I appreciate and I appreciate your help in this because, you know, you've been privy to this project before we even came out and, you know, helped along the way. And I appreciate that. Um, but thank you for bringing up that, that thought, because this is something I've shared to audiences, the fact that. You know, when I first saw Deep Throat, which was not with my father's knowledge or consent, I was only 15, and you know, might have seen it at the same theater that you saw it in. Uh, in that, it was you know, in Times Square there was one theater that showed um, Deep Throat and The Devil in Miss Jones on an endless loop, 24 hours a day. The theater was open every hour on the hour, and you could come and stay, and it was five dollars for both shows, and and like that. And so I saw. Deep Throat and the Devil and Miss Jones on a double bill. And, you know, Deep Throat is 61 minutes now. Our version is a little longer because, you know, we've added some, um, you know, we had to add some extra titles to credit the people involved in the, uh, in the um, restoration. Um, but, yeah, uh, Devil and Miss Jones is a little longer. So stuff got cut out just so they could maintain that, that schedule. And um, in researching the book I, and now the film, I went through – you know, my father's archives, you know, which had I been able to go back in time to, you know, 1973, I would have told my mom and dad, look, when you cut something out of the newspaper, please write the date and write what (laughs) newspaper it came out of, because it took me years to go through all these scraps of paper and just try to figure out where and what and how it fit in and try to put everything in a chronological sequence. So I could really understand the story because you know, my sister and I were very aware of our father and his career, but this is a perspective of a, you know, four, five, six, seven-year-old up until, you know, now, but, you know, we didn't really understand what was happening. You know, we would just, you know, know our father was upset or we weren't allowed to watch TV or this, you know, stuff like that was going on that, that, you know, we didn't really understand. But what I learned was that by looking at some of the variety um uh Top grossing, you know, Variety Magazine came out every week and we would get that delivered to the house. And even as a kid, we knew to run to the back and see, oh look, Daddy's film is is still on the charts. And that Deep Throat was in the charts in 1972 and into 1973. And this was you know the Variety Magazine top grossing films, 50 films every week they would show. And in the early weeks when it first started landing on the on the chart it shows the number of theaters that it was playing. And so The Godfather is on the list and it's showing it like 670 theaters across the United States. And here's mm-hmm. Deep Throat playing at one theater, okay? And then it's only playing at three theaters. And these theaters were open 24 hours a day. People were lining up online and go- going in around the clock. And that's how Deep Throat started climbing up the chart, you know, That It took some months before it was now playing in 70 theaters, and it made, you know, by estimates even then, half a million dollars, and that was 1970s money. So it really is something hard for people to think of today. Imagine a theater, a movie theater, that only showed one movie and did it for years and years, and people still kept coming to see the film. It really says a lot. It's hard to imagine.
3: Gerard? I was doing summer stock down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, a stage. And um, when I came back, it was 1972. (laughs) When I came back to New York, I lived right up the street on 8th Avenue and uh, 52nd Street. So I was real close to that theater uh, when it opened. But when I came back and I walked from the train station to my uh, apartment building and I passed by the theater, Deep throat, and I'm thinking, what the heck is that? You know, deep throat, okay. But why is there a line of people going around the block waiting to see it? So, uh, once again, my compliments to you for enhancing this uh, this wonderful uh, piece of art, Mm -hmm. and uh, good luck with it.
1: Well, thank you. Hopefully you'll be coming soon to a theater near you.
3: And if you're ever in the mountains again, I'll give you another interview free of charge.
1: Oh, well, I, I would love to see you where, as I mentioned, my sister and I are heading to California in a few days. Um, we've been trying to lay the groundwork to show the film um, in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Oakland and a few other places on the West Coast, as well as other places in the United States. I mean, we've we've done more shows in Italy than we've done in the U.S., and it's not that, you know, we, we don't want to, we've just got, you know, better response. And because my sister and I had been doing this ourselves, we don't have a distributor, which I wish we did. You know, my father was very distrustful of distributors because he always got screwed out of the money. You know, no matter, no matter who was distributing the film, we never, you know. He'd be reading the variety and say, hey, well, it made hey. it all money and do the math and like, wait, where's, <laughs> where's my piece? Okay. So, you know, we, we had some offers, but none of them really felt right. And so it's been a lot of work to just try to, you know, get bookings and so forth, because, you know, again, we're not just trying to sell it outright. We want to, to have events, you know, we've done a few shows where we had, uh, you know, a a pre-party, you know, cocktail meet and greet and then show the film and then have the talk back and then a burlesque show and like that and just make a whole night or a whole event of it. And that's what we love to do. So we're looking for places. Any of you out there know of a theater, you know, near you that might be interested in in hosting us? You know, we're we're open to that. Um, We'll show the film to anybody who's willing to watch it. We're looking for you know, diverse communities and diverse groups. Um, so although we've done, you know, 17, you know, different shows, most of our, our world tour has been, you know, in Europe. Um, and so we wanna push out further. We'd love to show the film in Tokyo and Rio and in Central America like that. So, you know, we're, we're keeping this going at least for the full year, that would be until June 11th. Um, we have a pending show in Amsterdam um, we did show the film at a private showing there um, at the home of uh, Xavier Hollander, the happy hooker, who some of you may, may know, if not just know of. Um, and that was a lot of fun. But we want to go back, um, especially since the, the negative itself came from Holland. We feel like we want to give back and also the, the reputation of Holland as really you know, a very uh, sexually open and free place in, in Europe. Um, but we're looking beyond that as well. So we're open to, you know, Eastern Europe and, you know, Asia and so on. So we're we're looking to book shows. So if any of you, you know, can DM me or get in touch with me through Patrick, um, if you have any ideas or thoughts, um, if you want to uh, join us online, if you're on Instagram, we're at Deep Throat Movie um, on Facebook and Twitter, Deep Throat Film, um, and we'll be posting our you know upcoming events and so forth um again we're we're traveling to the west coast to just firm up some of these dates and places and then we'll be releasing the rest of the the schedule um so we're you know excited again to um to get back out with the film before um we come home to finish the documentary
0: okay all right we have three quick questions we got to get through because we want to wrap stuff up uh sometime tonight alex is with us from minnesota alex go ahead Awesome. Thank you. Um, so I have a question when it comes to like the technical aspect when it comes to restoration and whatnot.
6: So mm-hmm. earlier you were, you were talking about um, the company that was doing the restoration is the same company that was doing like from here to eternity. Mm-hmm. So I was just wondering like, um, like how does the shopping around for a restoration company go about and like the film preservation aspects go about that and you know that sort of thing if you could kind of go into you know detail about that
1: sure well well thank you for that question and i can yep. i can say this is that the world of 35 millimeter films today is a very small one and the world of people that are preserving films again is small and i'm grateful to be in new york city you know in queens but in new york where i you know lived most of my life and you know grew up here um in that it's um, it's a place where you can find just about anything and everyone. And there's a lot of resources here. So I was able to connect with people that connected me with other people. And very soon, um, you know, by the time we got to Bologna, we met all the people that are, are, do film restoration. And so we were able to connect with, with a lot of different people who all seem to know each other. Because, again, those that are, that are dedicated to preserving 35-millimeter film um, it's a pretty small group worldwide. And everybody does, you know, know each other, you know, shop at the same place like that. And so that was helpful. And, um, you know, but at the same time, dealing with adult subject matter, a lot of companies are afraid to touch it, you know, there were companies that do the, you know, the DCPs and, and uh, KDMs, which, um, you know, if if you're not familiar with the way film is now distributed, it's all digital, you know, we're not, hauling around big cans of 35 millimeter films anymore. You know, you upload it to a server, you download it to the the theater. Films can be um, timed to where it they're only, the file is only valid for the day that it's going to show. And then it like, you know, self-destructs. And also it can be paired with a particular projector. So somebody couldn't just take the film and copy it and show it someplace else, you know, but a company that does that, you know, once they found out, oh, this is, they say, well, is this uh, you know uh, uh, is the film NC is it is it an X-rated film? And I said, well, it was back in seventies. Now you would call it NC-17. Okay. NC seventeen. NC said, oh well, we can't do that. I'm like, well, well, you know, it's not illegal. You know, it's for the film itself is legal to show, but they don't want to touch it. They don't want anybody to know that they're you know that they're involved in anything you know that again has adult content. So that's been tricky. All right. Eric is
0: up. Eric, go ahead. Hey, sir. How you doing? Thank you so much for being here. It's like um, talking to the, the child of royalty, pretty much, if you will.
4: Uh, <laughs> well, you yes. know, seeing
0: guys like Eric and Sean and Richard that, yeah, it, it's just crazy, you know. But again, thanks for being here. My question would be, and you touched on it some, when, when the movie blew up and it, it, you know, spread across the country, the title and everything like that, what was life like you for you? What what was life like for you and your sister, and like at home and school and and family picnics and stuff like that? Was it cousins coming up going hey get me in the next movie buddy? Was it stuff like that?
1: Well, yes, all of the above. In that you know, the the success and you know of deep throat was unprecedented, and so our father was a celebrity, and you know those of you who who either knew my father or, you know, I've seen his films or see him, he, you know, was unmistakable. He had a certain sense of style. So we couldn't walk down the street without people coming up and recognizing him. And, you know, more often than not wanting his autograph or, you know, it was a positive thing for the most part. But, you know, as I said before, a lot of people have very strong feelings about the film itself and about porn films in general that they're, you know, they have their minds made up about things before they even really, really know. And so there's some people that thought that was the greatest thing that our father made deep throat. There are some people thought that we should all burn in hell for it. And for my sister and I, it was a little tricky because again, first we were kids and then our father was very active when we were, you know, tweens and teens and, you know, high school and college. So, we didn't often, you know, make it public knowledge what our father did. And not because we were ashamed or we were embarrassed or anything like that. You know, on the contrary, we were very proud of him, but we found that people would judge us and they would have a lot of preconceptions about that. And I worried for my sister that, you know, guys think that, oh, she's the daughter of the, you know, of, of Mr. Deep Throat, you know, how they might, treat her or act towards her or what they might assume about her and so forth. So yeah, it was, it was a little tricky and, you know, something that, um, you know, we, we grew up dealing with cause that was our life. We didn't know any other, any other way. It was just kind of part and parcel of growing up in the, Damiano. Um, so, which is why, you know, right now making the film um, and working on, on this project has been, you know, important for my sister and I, and also cathartic, because it's something that's kind of overshadowed us our whole life, and now we're shining light on it, so, you know, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life, you know, showing deep throat, but I just want to get out there and do it, and say it, and, and, you know, embrace it, and accept it, and share it, and then finish my own film, and then take that back out on the road, and take that to Bologna, and everywhere else.
2: Sure.
0: Cartrell's with us. Cartrell, go ahead for your question. Oh,
1: yeah, how is it, like, growing up with Uh, Gerard Senior? Well, you know, our dad was a a lot of fun. I mean, for those of you who knew him, you know, he had a great sense of humor. He was a lot of fun to be around, especially, you know, when when he started making movies, he was very passionate about movie making. And so he, you know, that was infectious, even, you know, before we were old enough to be on the set, you know, the downside, and I would say, and I would share, um, was that once deep throat was out, and then his career started to take off, he wasn't around so much anymore, and we missed him. you know he would be out every night, he would stay out late he'd come home after we went to bed, he'd sleep when we went to school, you know like that so you know that was an effect that um it definitely had on us as kids, but we were always very close, and you know I spent a lot of time with with my dad, and in the end, um you know we all bought a house together, my sister and and uh, he and I and we all live together for, you know, the, thankfully, we we're able to sp- spend his last years together with him.
0: All right. Uh, uh, we have a question from gentleman from Brazil is with us. Johannes, uh, go ahead.
5: Hello. Uh, I want to know about João Fernandes and the
1: documentary. Ah. Uh, OK, well, João... Joao Fernandez, and thank you for bringing him up, was a dear friend of the family, but also better known to the world as a Harry Flex. Now, this is a name that my father had given him, um, along with um, the names Harry Reams to Herb Stryker and Linda Lovelace. This is, you know, my father was proud of, like, making up these names that you know, people <laughs> would use, use for their, the rest of their lives. Now, you know, Joao is uh, alive and well and, and living in um in uh, Oregon. Um, I did interview him for the documentary and have been in touch with him recently. Um, we actually saw him, my sister and I, on our last visit to uh, uh, Oregon and California. We we stopped and um, spent a couple of nights and saw him a few times and talked to him about this. We've kicked around the idea of maybe bringing the film to Oregon and showing it there so that we can invite him. If we do this show in, um, in Hollywood, um, we would love to bring him down to represent and talk about, you know, his experience on the set of Deep Throat. It was the first, uh, film that he and my father worked on together. Um, he went on to shoot my father's most famous films, um, his most critically acclaimed films, including Devil and Miss Jones, Memories with the Miss Aggie, Story of Joanna, were all shot by, by João. So, um, I hope that answers your question. And, uh, You know, we hope to see him before long.
0: Claire, do you know anybody in Oregon who'd like to go to this? Myself, yeah. (laughs) I'm in Portland.
1: Oh, okay. Well, we we were in Portland. We went to one theater. I I have to look it up. I'm going to say it was like the Hollywood Theater. It was a really beautiful space. And, you know, we went there. The manager wasn't out, but we took a quick tour and we got the number. And, you know, we'll be following up with them. But we'd like to come and do... Portland, Eugene, San Francisco, Santa Barbara, you know, Los Angeles, and anywhere else in between.
4: Yeah, and if you like, you said you you, you sometimes do burlesque shows or incorporate cocktails or whatever. I know a lot of cocktail people, oh, <laughs> so okay. if you need a bar program, <laughs> let, let me know. I can help hook that up.
1: Okay. Well, you know, you can if you want to send your info in the in the, the chat window or get in touch with me through Patrick. I'll definitely um let you know but we're hoping to to do that you know we we love portland we spent uh some time there recently you know on our way from vancouver you know down to uh to los angeles um which sadly was interrupted because um you know our our town and you know again we're from queens new york but you know we bought our house together with our father down in uh, fort myers florida and that's a place where we visited you know for for decades a lot of the great films that our father Uh, made were written down in Fort Myers by the pool. And so, you know, my sister and I still have the house um, that we we bought together with our father. Um, But unfortunately, right in the middle of that trip, um, it was struck by Hurricane Ian back in September of 2022. So we basically had to drop everything, you know, and leave um, San Francisco to head to Florida to um, assess the damages, basically. And, you know, this time we were lucky We've had four major hurricanes hit since we bought this house, and we've not always been so lucky. We just finished repairing all the damage from Hurricane Irma, which was five years ago. Um, this time we got off relatively, you know, um, easy. But the rest of the town is devastated. The whole area, you know, the barrier islands were just washed away. It's a real tragedy what happened down there. So, you know, unfortunately, it um, you know cut our trip short. And um, we're only now just kind of getting it back together, which is why we're heading back to the, the West Coast to make up for what we missed out on back in the fall.
0: Um, before we go, we do want to talk about, we can uh, do this on a website of sorts. Uh, you do have some memorabilia that your father has has signed or memorabilia from the tour that you're on. Uh, and uh, do you have a website we can go to if you have this thing, uh, items for sale or
1: um, what um, do you have? Well, yes, I will say this um, briefly, uh, damianofilms.com. Um, we are um, selling some merch and so forth from the from the film, from the tour and, and like that. Um, that's something that's only just coming together. There is a bit of a, of a store there, but it's not fully operational. Um, this, the items that you spoke about are something that, um, you know, after we, we had our conversation about this, it made me think about, you know, what might be, Interested, uh, interesting to people who collect autographs and memorabilia. And there's a few things that we have that, um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily put up on our website, because, you know, there's just a a couple of things that we have, but I would, I would share that. Um, One of which is, is this promotional um, image. Now, Mark has one of these, but this is something, it was an image of my father that was in WE Magazine. um, And it's him on the, on the toilet there because it was in response to a question of, uh, what's better than sex? And they asked celebrity. <laughs> my, my, father, my father was in good company with, um, they had, uh, no. uh, I'm just reading off the thing, Alfred Hitchcock, Stevie Wonder, Alice Cooper, Andy Warhol, etc. And there was a big article with some great pictures, but his response, what's better than sex? He said, a good bowel movement. So that was the, that. and he thought that was so funny that he had these printed up as promotional materials. So <laughs> I have a couple of, the, of his original uh, promotional pieces that, you know, a couple of these I would sell, but, you know, again, not necessarily put them up on the website because there's only a few. Sure.
0: So, uh, we'll, we'll be in contact on that. Cause we, this is basically a collector's site. As a, the, the Facebook group is originally a, a collector's site and, and, uh, Thank goodness we've had uh, some of the legends from uh, the adult industry in with us tonight, and and other times as well. So we'll we'll work on that, and we'll maybe privately offer them to members of our group, and we'll go from there. I'll, I'll have to invite you to the group as well, too, Gerard uh, Joseph. For our last question, go ahead.
2: Me? Yeah. Okay. No worries. Um, I had a little bit of an issue or a second ago, so I apologize to everybody. I'm back. I was going to check and see what if I missed if there if and when there will be a Blu-ray release of the film because the best I've got is like a 2005 high definition release from Arrow
1: Video Mm -hmm. on DVD from thousand years ago. Right now, it's actually the background you see. Yes, now um, I'm very familiar with that, and that's the the very DVD that I mentioned, um, which is been cleaned up and brightened. When I first saw it, I was like, wow, this looks great. It looks too good. I don't remember it looking this good. Wow. And I brought it to Ceneric to, um, you know, as we were doing the restoration and, you know, just to show them some of the original colors, because the, um, the print that we were working from the negative was a little faded and, and dark. Um, but what they pointed out was they cleaned up that version so much that they cleaned all the grain out of it. They made it, you know, look very bright and very sharp and very clean and very clear, which was different than the way it actually showed in the theaters. I mean, there is some film grain in it, and we feel that grain is good. I mean, this is, this is you know, my, my father was so proud of shooting on 35 millimeter. You can actually see that. Um, so, yes, we um, do plan on releasing it. We would like to um, include uh, bonus features which is why we haven't, you know, we want to do the theatrical thing first, then we'll put out the disc, but we have commentary from Joao Fernandez, for example, talking over the entire film about, you know, the behind the scenes. And, you know, I have recordings of my father himself speaking about his experiences. And then, you know, I'm able to fill in the blank. So we really want to offer that along with the DVD and a short subject about making the film. And so, you know, that's, held this up a little bit um, but we hope that um, you know people won't forget about us that uh, they'll be interested when we get that out they'll be interested in, in seeing the DVD and then and then we'll um, put it up for streaming we are considering doing maybe a few events where we have a you know a live stream from a certain time to a certain time to do like a group event invite you know an audience to see and maybe do a, a virtual talk back like that so um if uh, if Patrick could put me in touch with everyone, maybe I'll join the Facebook group or what have you, and I'm happy to, to share details about that stuff as it comes up.
0: Okay. Well, we have gone over a little bit, but, boy, I tell you, it has been so worth it tonight. That's for sure. We uh, have...
2: Patrick, can I have a word and goodbye? Yep, yep. Gerard, I am so happy that I tuned into this show today. <laughs> you were at a pivotal moment in history when the forces of release of sexual energy coincided with a moment to open it up to the masses. And it happened in that movie, largely because it was a comedy. And it offered a funny, not frightening view of sexuality, which was a lot of the porn in those days, bend over, bitch. In any case, Patrick, you are so lucky to have this on tape. This man has encapsulated so much of that. You are so large and big in your consideration of all the factors that work in that mind, in that time. Your father right now is smiling, and I have no doubt shedding a few tears of joy for who his son turned out to be. God bless you. and thank you. And good night, Gracie. <laughs> and <laughs> I was going to
0: introduce Richard to, to, to wrap it up, and he did put a good bow on it. Uh, Gerard, any final thoughts?
1: Well, I just want to say thank you for everyone, uh, to everyone for tuning in. Um, it's been a pleasure sharing some stories. I hope that um, I will be able to meet some of you in person as we uh, take the, the film across America and around the world again. Um, so please get in touch if you have any leads or know of any, any place that might be interested in uh, allowing us to show the film. And um, once again, thank you.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Jared Damiano has been our guest tonight. Don't forget next week, uh, Carmela Clutch will be our star featured person for <laughs> this talking. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not discounting Carmela, but she's not going to hold a candle to this.
2: Tonight. Yeah, it's hard to top this one. But uh, <laughs>
0: anyway, Carmela will be our our guest next week, and she was a little sweetheart met her to the X3 convention in uh, in Los Angeles when we were there in January. So anyway, love is strange and we'll see you next week on justtalking.com. Thank you.